and it certainly raises questions of of how deep in the in the vault you know have they gone they now have to keep printing or we crash we've got this ticking time bomb talking gold with the one and only andrew mcguire welcome to live from the vault Welcome to Live from the Vault. My name is Shane Moran, and I'll be your host for this episode and from the entire Live from the Vault team worldwide. We want to thank you for your continued support. And as you can imagine, this community keeps growing more and more every single week, and there's a lot to talk about during these historic times. And Andrew McGuire is in the house with an industry expert and by popular demand, Lynn Alden of Lynn Alden Investment Strategies is in the house. We'll be welcoming her in a second. And uh, we'll be talking gold uh, today. This is going to be an amazing episode. You won't want to miss a word here. Uh, you know, because Live from the Vault gives you access to information and updates that you just can't get anywhere else. And this episode is no exception. And just before we go to talking gold with uh, Andrew McGuire and our special guest, Lynn Alden, please help us spread the word about this channel by hitting that like button, you know, sharing this with everyone you know, and also subscribe if you hit the bell right there you'll be notified as each episode goes live so with that let me introduce our special guest lynn alden is the founder of lynn alden investment strategies and she started it in 2016 providing instant institutional level research in plain english so that both institutional investors and retail investors can benefit from it so lynn's work has been editorially featured on the in the wall street journal business insider market watch times money magazine the daily telegraph the philadelphia inquirer the street cnbc us news world report just to name a very very few lynn has also served as an advisor for startup companies hedge funds executive committees and of large institutions so with that let's head over to the uk and talking gold with the one and only Andrew McGuire and our special guest, Lynn Alden. Over to you, Andy. Well, the first thing I must do is, is say this is very special. And thank you. Thank you so much for joining us, Lynn. Um, it's been uh, really looking forward to this. Uh, and I think, you know, really our, our focus, I think one of the things that, that really makes this special is our focus. Uh, we have this sort of almost myopic view of of the gold and silver markets. We live and breathe it. Obviously, we're we're on this. I mean, personally, I'm on the wholesale side. Um, also, I've been uh, an active whistleblower. Um, I'm actually it was a great deal of my evidence was actually what brought down uh, the NOAC and those guys at uh, J.P. Morgan. Uh, I've been working with the CFTC DOJ uh, since 2008. And uh, really, a lot of that evidence took 10 years to really crystallize. But so we just want a, a level playing field. Uh, that's all we ever cared about. That's what markets should be. I brought my children into this marketplace and I want it to be fair. And I think um, so really, I, I think, you know, if I could just open by saying, look, obviously, our focus is on the gold and silver markets. And and from a long term perspective, I mean, there's. <laughs> probably very little doubt that over 5,000 years, gold has proved itself as the ultimate wealth protection asset class. I mean, forget about making money, that is a wealth protection asset class. But to assess the medium and short-term action, you know, obviously as traders, as a stacker, it doesn't matter, but we have to weigh up the input, the crosses that affect our investment timings. And I could just think of no better source to assess 
these really important crosses that impact um, our, 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 you know, our decision making. And, and Lynn, I read your um, your specialist October newsletter. Huge interest in that, and it really addressed my concerns, resulting um, really relating, sorry, to the to to the the sovereign gold bubble. I mean, you were so early in drawing attention to that in 2019. I mean, I, I, I didn't see that. I didn't see that before now, but I look back at what you've done. I mean, you know, that you were talking about 18 trillion in negative yields back then, uh, at a time when the mainstream media was, was spinning the mantra inflation was dead, and, and you proved them dead wrong. Interestingly, this once again addresses the question that you posed back then, also, are bonds safe? And really, this is where I'm, I'm just gonna ask you, can you share your thoughts on, let's just start there, Lynn, and share your thoughts on this, please. Yeah, so back back several years ago, before uh, the pandemic and before some of the, the craziness that happened, uh, you know, I was analyzing markets, and, you know, there was a lot of concerns about, say, stock valuations, how expensive they were, and I was saying, okay, this is, you know, that's a legitimate concern. There are a number of, of highly valued equities out there. There's also some cheap ones. But I said the, the more remarkable thing is what's going on in the bond market where, you know, you had most in Europe, you had a lot of negative yielding debt. Um, and then you had, you had basically zero yields uh, in Japan. Uh, in, in, in the United States, we had, you know, near zero on the short end of the curve, a little higher, uh, you know, when you go out. And so basically had super low yielding debt. Most of it was below the inflation rate. Um, and the idea was that inflation's dead, it's never coming back, was one thing I looked at from researching history is that normally when, uh, you know, countries get very indebted at the sovereign level, so very large levels of debt relative to GDP, they kind of go past the event horizon where that debt is ever going to be paid back in, in purchasing power terms, right? And so obviously different countries, depending on their debt profile, will handle that differently. If an emerging market and your debt is nominated a currency you can't print, like dollars, or if you go back long enough and, and some you know countries would have like gold reparations and things like that, they can't print those things. And so they, they could outright default on some of their obligations or restructure them, which is another way of saying default. Whereas if, if the debts are denominated in their own currency, normally it's through inflation. Right, so you, you, it's financial oppression holding yields below the inflation rate, uh, and uh, you know the the kind of the post-war era, uh, you know in Europe it was the it was the it was the twenties, and in the United States and much world again it was the the forties where a lot of that sovereign debt was was eviscerated in real terms, and I, I started to see kind of a, a similar dynamic building here, um, and I it just it, none of the risk was priced in my view. I think it's you know some of that's been priced better now, uh, but I still think that you know. I mean, this has been a historic uh, bond crash globally. Uh, you know, tens of trillions of dollars have been in paper wealth and wiped out of the sovereign bond market, uh, let alone, you know, the, the corporate bonds that are, you know, all the other types of bonds that are kind of, you know, associated with those yields at a higher level. And, you know, going forward, you know, say treasuries are less terrible looking than they were. But generally speaking, I think most sovereign paper wealth is, is not going to do very well in purchasing power terms say, over the next decade. That's really interesting. And of course, because so, I think what 70, I, I don't know, you probably know better than me, but 70 or 80% of, of global trade is conducted in dollars. And then, so if you're, if you're, uh, if you're a foreign um, central bank, then you have to likely hedge that in your own currency, which must create huge problems. Yeah, there's definitely, there's, there's a growing issue where 
ironically, the United States like dollar market, as big as it is, it's not really big enough to serve the whole world anymore. You know, when when this system was constructed with the with the dollar and the treasury at the core of the system after the post-war era. Uh, you know, the United States was over like 40% of global GDP. It was kind of like the last country standing. Um, and it had all the gold, it had all the military, and it had all the economy, the, the industrial capacity. And as things have been rebuilt, and then as, as you know, multiple countries have, have risen in power, we, we live in a more multipolar world now, right? So the United States is, is closer to 20% of, of GDP, depending on how you look at purchasing power pair, it'll be less than that. If you look at nominal dollar terms, it's a little bit above 20%, but it, it certainly, you know, reduced its its share of global economy, but it still has a very large share of that global payment and reserve volume. And I think it's kind of squeezing parts of the world out. And uh, now, obviously, for geopolitical reasons, too, but I think even before uh, some of the events of this year, there was a, a, a recognition among mul- multiple countries that they want to, you know, diversify their payment and reserve uh you know, situation. Uh, that's different than saying, you know, we don't want to hold any treasuries, but it's saying we want to diversify the types of assets that we hold. And then for some of the largest countries and some of the largest currency blocks, uh, they had an interest in being able to, say, purchase oil in their own currency uh, and then and then have those oil producers maybe hold, you know, those sovereign bonds. Uh, and so it's, it's, you know, you're actually kind of, it's a circular economy there where, say, China can buy oil from, you know, Russia and then Russia can take that currency. They can hold it. They can also go back to the Chinese market and buy, you know, electronics and, and things that, that China produces because they're a large uh, manufacturer. And I think that's the world we're still kind of headed towards. It's, it's a more multipolar world. And then I think, you know, this this year certainly added some fuel to the fire because now every country realizes that there's counterparty risk with where they hold their reserve assets. And so I, I, I think that you know, there's multiple things that, that have been not good for the bond market. And if you're if you're, say, an oil producer, or even if you're an oil-consuming country, and you're holding reserves, and those reserves are losing value relative to, uh, you know, oil, for example, you know, kind of hard assets, uh, it's a melting ice cube. And and so, you know, no oil producer wants to sell all of its, like, you know, kind of finite resources and then put them into, you know, melting ice cube assets. At the same time, if you're a country that is holding those reserves because of the idea that, you know, in the future... You know they can hold their value, and you can you can buy, say, oil or other imports with them. If that if that is a diminishing value, it, it lessens the it cheapens like the the purpose of reserves. And so I think we're kind of undergoing a, a transition here. Yeah, and, and and so we and it's funny in the lead up to Russia um, invading Ukraine, uh, we saw uh, really them them ditch pretty much all their treasuries. Uh, and move into physical gold and, and really openly move into physical gold. And I think, you know, that sort of kind of raises the, 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 the thought in my mind. And, and when I, we look back, and, and you're a historian, and, and you know, um, and when I think about it, that while the BRICS countries and the Saudis and Russians, etc., um, uh, accumulate physical, China, of course, it, it raises the question... Um, and this is, again, something that's interesting because the, the gold collateralization of U.S. foreign um, obligations is now at, at historic lows. It's like something like three or four percent. And and when it used to be 20 to 40 percent historical average. So and I think that I think Basel three, I think after March 2020, we saw a huge implosion of the exchange for physical market blow up. We saw the liquidity providers 
in uh, in the spot market um, being turned upon for delivery when they had no nothing to back it up. And I think Basel III was brought in, and SFR uh, conditions were brought in. I think really, I think the bigger while that addressed the the, the, the put a, a band aid essentially on on the issue. I think the bigger picture here to me is to me is what, what's the Bank of International Settlements doing here? Because suddenly I'm trying to connect all these dots. You know, they've got. They've brought in these NSFR standards, which means essentially, if you if you got a liquid, if you're a liquidity provider holding a, a, a gold position, you better have that physical available uh, if you're called on it. And um, and I think now we see the Bank of International Settlements uh, calling in leases, uh, reducing their swaps to historical lows. I mean, we're talking what 50 tons now. It used to be five, six hundred tons. Um, and I kind of wonder: is anything going on here? Is is this a story about U.S. dollar hegemony? Is it at risk? I mean, what what do you think? Well, so there are there are people that study those nuances of the gold market at a much deeper level than I do. Uh, but a, a general trend that we're seeing, obviously, is that gold's moving from west to east, essentially, right? So so a lot of the physical gold is going to China, going to India, uh, you know, going to Turkey, going to Russia, as you pointed out, multiple countries throughout kind of Eurasia, uh, the BRICS nations, uh, and so there's there's that general migration of, of the physical metal uh, where where some cultures have they either have the, the trade surpluses to absorb it uh, or or their society values it more views it as more of a store of value whereas uh, you know Western a lot of Western investors have have somewhat lost interest in it uh, and a lot of the Western countries are running these deficits anyway so there's, there's this general flow uh, which which kind of corresponds to the rise of, of power uh, of Asia uh, as an economic force in general uh, and so we are seeing kind of that that those interesting dynamics uh, in the gold market, and you know it's it's obviously been a long story where multiple people can think they have exposure to gold, and and not really have exposure to gold. Like if, if things really hit the fan, if 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 you know you kind of put the cards on the table, who has the gold? You know a lot of people think they have gold, but but if they actually were to all kind of call on those claims at once, some of them would be obviously left left without it. And I think that the market is is kind of going through that process to sort some of that out. Uh, and obviously that that can have long-term implications about price, right? Because if more if if you can increase the supply of claims without increasing the supply of the underlying, that can obviously uh, you know be negative for pricing. Uh, whereas if you have a a kind of a true perception of you know where the gold is and who owns it, um, that that can be constructive for price as long as the demand is there. Uh, and so I think that's a I think that's a trend we're seeing. Um, and it's interesting because gold, you know, obviously gold's had a rough year. Uh, this year, but if you compare it to like long duration bonds, which is which is one of the, you know the closest things you you compare it to, you know gold held up better than most long duration bonds did. So it, it was you know it didn't it didn't go up like a number of people would have hoped, but it, it did some damage control in a portfolio or in a in a net worth. Yeah, and I think again we're back to the wealth preservation aspect. And I think if you're a ten a, a ten minute chart trader. Yeah, it's volatile. You know, of course it is. I mean, you've got a paper market, you've got a physical market, you've got a viscous coupling, you've got the EFP coupling. And yeah, and then and silver isn't an SFR compliant, so it tends to be a little more vo- uh, volatile. But but I think it, it's really interesting because um, we, we see here a, di- a, a dynamic, a, a shift. Uh, for example, um, you know, since, I mean, the COMEX was instigated somewhere 50 years ago, pretty much 50 years ago. And it was really to address, it was after Nixon came off the um, uh, gold standard, 
And essentially what it was really, two years later, the Comex was formed. And it was the ability to create limitless amounts of paper gold at will. And of course, uh, being in a margin, being margin, borrowed, etc., etc., and the the hedge funds running with that flow, uh, as you say, never really necessarily owning anything of the underlying. Um, I think what's changed, uh, what's changed is since Basel III NSFR standards came into play, uh, I think we have seen a shift. And it's interesting because we speak to our liquidity providers at the end of each day, and these guys are really, really strong. Uh, in 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 making the markets global markets and 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 they're saying you know what if it anything that does transfer through um, other than what can be flywheeled in unallocated form into the GLD or the or the ETFs which aren't necessarily uh, allocated it it can be a, a flow of unallocated in and out and it doesn't necessarily get get allocated but but essentially. It is getting, it, it, it's a change, it's a change of behavior. And whereas the COMEX was never, ever intended to be a delivery market. Now, I mean, I will raise silver for the moment here. As of last week, there's such a divergence between the silver physical market where we have almost COVID-like conditions in the European refiners, um, Swiss refiners, Valkami, all of these guys that we speak to are on an energy cap. And essentially, why are you going to use your energy bandwidth in in uh, in refining silver when you're, you're already capped as to how much you can use and you can do it more profitably with gold? So suddenly, and I think the point I'm trying to make here, suddenly, as of last week, my European wholesaler said, the hell with it. We're going to collect this gold from the COMEX. Now, there's no... You're not, it's not usual to have a loadout from a COMEX warehouse. It is usually just it's a warrant shuffling exercise and everyone settles out. No one's ever going to take delivery, probably. So you can get away with that. But for 10 to 12 cents, we can fly this stuff out into Europe, which is starved for physical. And uh, we can suddenly literally drain the COMEX inventories. Now, it's interesting. Any thoughts on this or changes that these dynamic changes? Well, so I think I, you know, I think you obviously outlined it, it very well there. Uh, that you have, you know, these specific conditions. Uh, that's that's something I've been I've been tracking in a broader scale, uh, not not necessarily focusing on the on those refiners, but for example, because of the energy shortages in Europe, uh, there's a number of energy intensive industries that have that have either voluntarily shut down or, or you know been, been basically uh, you know given like a. a kind of an order to shut down and so you've seen that in fertilizer companies you've seen that in multiple types of metals uh uh producers uh as well as obviously consumers trying to ration their energy where possible uh and so that obviously can have an impact and it's it's often during the these idiosyncratic type of of events that broader things get get revealed right so i mean uh, the idea of a market where people trade claims on something and then never take physical delivery is kind of um it's kind of a game right but then if, if if there's events every every once you know a few times in history where people actually re- say wait a second we actually want this it's kind of a test on that system to see you know uh how's that going to go and it kind of it kind of keeps the industry more honest uh to that you know when, when delivery has to happen and then there's also i mean i think that a number of a number of sovereign buyers over time i think i've realized that that custody matters right so a number of a number of um you know countries hold their gold outside of their jurisdiction and a number of them 
uh, have kind of over time decided to repatriate uh, that gold. And to the extent that they continue buying gold, they, they generally want to, some of them want to bring it in their borders, uh, as well as, you know, private entities in those countries. Uh, I think, you know, as we move towards a more multipolar world, uh, kind of, you know, east and west, maybe trusting each other less or, you know, multiple different parts of the world trusting each other less, that, that question of custody matters more. And so I think that the, that the goal can become less less kind of centralized and more spread out to those jurisdictions. And I think that's a general trend. Yeah, and I think you're, it's, it's so right on because, I mean, we've seen sanctions being imposed um, uh, on Russia. We've seen sanctions being imposed on China. We, and, and there's this sort of lurking fear that, hang on, maybe I should have, uh, a re, I should repatriate my my gold, especially gold. I mean, gold is money. And so, so essentially you need to have that um, repatriated. And then we saw that interesting story. I don't know if you remember in 2013, when Germany asked for their, um, for their 300 tons, tiny 300 tons back, and it was going to take seven years. Uh, and, and, we, and, and, and really, we, we suddenly thought, well, hold on a minute, you know, it raises issues of rehypothecation. I mean, what? I mean, we're not a conspiracy theory. It's like, why? I mean, I can move 20 tons of gold on a plane and I could have done that in, in a week. So why would it take seven years? And, and it's suddenly, and then we find out as this gold arrives that some of it's old bars that need to be remelted, reprocessed. And I'm just wondering, do you think that, this 8,000 odd tons of, of, uh, of US dollar held gold, is it possible that, that there is rife rehypothecation that it's been leased, sold multiple times over? I think it's certainly possible. And like I said before, there are people that study those types of questions at a deeper level than I do. But it is one of the challenges that you have to essentially trust uh, what, what, what they're saying. Um, and, I, I, you know, there has obviously been a history of, of, you know, countries kind of dipping into things like that, um, you know, when they when they feel like they need to. And so I wouldn't I wouldn't have full faith uh, that that those, you know, all those tons are there as as stated. I even brought up the question before uh, to my audience. I was like, if, if the BRICS nations, right, they've been talking about doing like a commodity backed, uh, you know, currency or partially commodity backed. They're kind of floating ideas out there. And I kind of asked the question, like, would you trust their supply audits, uh, you know, and and would they trust each other? Um, and, you know, and then people ask the natural question, I mean, would you trust the United States, uh, especially if, if there's no audit, right? And so, you know, I think I think the, some of these, uh, you know, kind of sovereign level uh, questions, uh, I, I think are worth asking because it, yeah, I would say it's, it's not fully clear uh, that all the gold is there uh, as expected. And I think that, you know, as you've seen that migration from West to East, you know, I've heard, I've heard for example, about those, those old bars and it certainly raises questions of, of how deep in the in the vault, you know, have they gone? Yeah, yeah, that's that's interesting too. And I think um, now in your in your when when you talk to your clients and obviously you know whether it's private or whether it's not, generally speaking, do you um, suggest um, to your clients that they should have some exposure to gold and silver within their um, asset classes? Yeah, yeah, I generally, I, I generally recommend a non-zero position, right? And obviously, the, the sizing can vary based on someone's, you know, what what type of capital they're running, uh, what their conviction is in, in the asset. Uh, but I generally think that you know zero is not the right number 
uh, for, for most people and that, that having, you know, some position is worthwhile. And then of course, how they want to hold that can differ. I mean, one of the advantages of, of gold and silver is that you can, you can custody some, it's nice to have a bearer asset. Uh, and of course, there's also ways that you can link it to, you know, like payment mechanisms and things like that. So for people that want that, that price exposure and, and are willing to have someone else custody it. Uh, and so I think that, you know, especially given what's happening in sovereign bond markets and then the, the longer term question about, you know, what are countries going to, you know, use as sovereign reserves if we go through this kind of long term period of financial oppression where bond yields are, are below the prevailing inflation rate um, and there's some counterparty risk out there. Uh, I, I think we're, we're kind of entering an environment where, where gold is likely to be more attractive than than you know, sovereign debt in a lot of cases. That doesn't mean every single year, you know, for example, we've had such a sell-off in bonds that I wouldn't be surprised, you know, that, that you know, now at these higher yield levels, they're, they're a little bit more interesting. Uh, but I think longer term, there's going to be this, this financial oppression where paper assets uh, generally struggle in purchasing power terms compared to real assets. And, and gold would be one of the, the types of real assets along with, with silver. And I guess really, it, it so much depends on uh, on the on your clients' um, time perspective, time frames. Obviously, uh, I mean, I, I, perfect example. I was with um, somebody, a client, who said, oh, "I've just Andrew, I've just sold my business for seven hundred thousand pounds. What do I do with my money?" And I, I said, "Where is it?" He said, "It's in the bank." I said, "Oh, okay. You do realise that's an investment decision you've made there. That's not that's not just." warm fuzzy feeling between your ears that is an investment decision and then you've got inflation running what 10 this country 10.1 10.3 so really i mean think about that as an investment but then he said yeah but andy isn't it it's just so volatile i said hold on a minute so we drew up a chart and there in the gold the dollar index just hit 20 uh, 20 year highs but what was the price of gold in dollars 315 bucks back then so it's really, it throws that volatility um, aspect right out the window because as a wealth preservation tool, so I suppose really time is the key answer here as to what percentage you want to put into gold. Yeah, and I think it also depends on the opportunity set of what else is out there, right? So if you're in an environment where multiple assets are very cheap, uh, relative to your assessment of, of how well they're going to do. So in other words, you have a, a high rate of return expectation on multiple types of assets. In that type of environment, then maybe people want a lower gold allocation. They want to go out into those, you know, the, the you know, more, more generating type of assets, capital, uh, to have a higher rate of return. Whereas if you're in an environment where, you know, multiple things are very highly priced, going back to sovereign bonds in, in 2019, I mean, negative yielding bonds uh, or near zero yielding bonds. That's basically another way of, and if you have a, if you have a sovereign bond yield with a 1% yield, it's kind of like saying a hundred price to earnings ratio uh, that is, that is not going to grow, but is super safe. Right. And so is, does that sound attractive to people? Most people would say no, but then you say, well, what about a 1% yielding treasury? And back then people were like, yeah, that seems fine. Uh, or, you know, obviously zero or negative uh, in, in many cases. Uh, and so in that in, in that environment where the, the whole the opportunity set of, of stocks and bonds in general is is unattractive in terms of forward returns, then, then gold becomes more attractive. And historically, if you look at things like, you know, the CAPE ratio, the cyclically adjusted price to earnings ratio of the S&P 500, as an example, you know, during periods where it's highly valued, uh, generally the next 10 years, stocks underperform gold, uh, whereas 
the inverse is true. If, if, if the CAPE ratio gets very, very cheap and you're able to actually get good dividend yields and good earnings yields and, and you know, the, the basically the, the equities are under-owned, uh, then generally going for the next 10 years, they're likely to outperform uh, gold. Uh, and so I, I think we're, you know, we're in that environment where it's, it's not at some of the extremes like it was before, but I, I think the opportunity set out there is really challenging, especially for uh, you know, the S&P 500, these, these big uh, tech stocks that I think are still somewhat pricey, uh, as well as still looking at, you know, m- much of the global sovereign bond market. Uh, and I think that the opportunity set of gold is, is, is better than a lot of those over, say, a five, 10 year period going forward. Yeah. And as we, I think another aspect, for, again, very gold centric, but the, um, when we see um, the liquidity of uh, Flowing out of the paper markets of the of the COMEX into the physical exchanges globally, it's becoming much more of a physical asset. So I think on the other hand of things, we're thinking as another dynamic is what is the real price of gold? And if you take away that big, enormous 50 years of accrued paper um, uh, you know this paper sort of uh, wall of, 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 of supply that's been coming in. And suddenly we'd look at the COMEX, we'd look at it closely, we'd look at the... And obviously it's, it's one thing to look at the COMEX because, yes, you can see the... You can see the, um, the, the... You look at the COT report, you can see who's long, who's short. But what is missing from that report is, of course, what's happening in the over-the-counter markets, what's in the 10 times larger over-the-counter markets. So it's really not a great deal of help. But, but essentially what we are seeing is we look at the open interest evaporating. We see as wholesalers where this is going. And I think this is, again, back to Basel III, forcing, I think, certainly in gold. I mean, silver's joined at the hip, so I'm sure at some point that will have an effect too. But there's that other dynamic of gold actually becoming a more of a physically priced supply demand aspect. And and look, we were paying uh, to last week, and okay, it's come off a bit now, because while India was very strong, um, we were paying $15 an ounce over in Dubai for wholesale kilo bars. Now, hang on a minute, that, that, is, that is a huge disconnect from what is actually the tail wagging the dog, the COMEX tail wagging the, the physical dog, because um, then you're getting a fixed price, but the fixed price is actually determined by just three to five tonnes. When when the global's, global demand, is, it, the global's physical sub- demand and deliveries is multiple times that. So it's kind of siloed in this little ring-fenced world still, which is, I think, I, I can see this changing rapidly as liquidity flows out, it's going somewhere. So I think um, the, the fact that gold should have a revaluation element to it. People ask me what the price of gold is. I don't know what the price of gold would be. I, I couldn't even guess, to be honest. But um, it certainly seems like a, a good element, in, especially you talk about the market being broken, essentially, is it not? Uh, then then the, these are other things to bear in mind, in my view. Yeah, I think, you know, you know, during periods of history where we have kind of these, these, you know, just shifts in how the global financial system works, right? So, you know, you had a shift, uh, you know, in, in say the 40s, you had another shift in the 70s. I, I think we're in that kind of era now, you know, when you look at charts of, of major shifts, uh, there's a lot of kind of similarities uh, here. And so, I, you know, I think that investors do have to be aware of the possibility of nonlinear events, right? Where, where you know, things change 
you know, over the course of a year, over the course of a weekend in some cases, and this things are different after that. And then you could have a, a pretty significant repricing in some assets. And I think I think gold is kind of near the top of the list of things that could go through repricing and, and kind of by its nature, predicting something like that is, is impossible or very hard. Uh, you know, it's, it's kind of a, any given year, it's a low probability event. Uh, but I think that we're in that type of decade where some of those low probability events are, you know, are going to happen. And I think we have, obviously we've already seen some of them. And I think that, that a, a, a shift in how the gold market works and how it's priced and, and kind of a check to see who actually has the gold is, is kind of one of those, those possibilities. And, you know, one of the catalysts that, that I think could, you know, contribute to that is right now, you know, the market does kind of expect that inflation's transitory. If you look at, for example, um, inflation break-evens, for example, like the the you know the bond market's forward assessment of what inflation's likely to be, they're they're looking at much lower numbers than than it is now. And I do think that we're we are in a disinflationary period uh, from from the the prior uh, you know kind of that that big spike uh, in inflation. So I think in in a number of of uh, places that that the, infl- the inflation's coming off. Uh, but I think that we're still in a structurally uh, inflationary environment uh, when you look at, for example, the energy capex situation, and I do think that uh, you know once the Fed gets done with their period of tightening, um, I think that the eventually the market's going to have a reassessment of of forward inflation expectations, and that could change a lot of investor behavior around you know how they treat bonds and and how they how they look at gold, right? Because right now with the dollar soaring. And with with yields going up and and investors kind of expecting that inflation is is transitory, they're looking at these things as though they have positive real yields, and so that obviously when you, when you can get positive real yield on a bond, that can be pretty attractive relative to gold. But if if the market reassesses its forward inflation expectations uh, with rates at these levels, uh, and you, you kind of have reassessment and you start looking at it and say, what if we are in a long period of negative real yields? Then, then gold becomes, you know, it gets increased attractiveness, and so I, I think there are some catalysts to look for going forward. And it's, you know, when I was looking at the bond market, you know, a few years ago, it's just like, it, it's, it's like the the market was just not looking into the future at all, or it, at the same time, it's not even looking into the past. It's not looking in terms of history of what happens when bond markets behave like this. Um, and I think we're we're kind of still in that environment now, where there's not a full recognition, I think, of how trapped a lot of these sovereign, highly indebted sovereigns are in terms of their ability to maintain the purchasing power of those bonds. And I think that as that becomes more fully kind of assessed and priced in by the market, and as we kind of grind through this year over year, and people kind of realize that you know some of these issues are going to be with us for a while, I think that could, you know, that could make gold more attractive. And then while you're going through those processes to kind of reduce the, you know, kind of the 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 games in the market, uh, I, I think it can kind of like, you know, result in a repricing. I think you've distilled that absolutely brilliantly. And I think people should replay that because I, honestly, I think you've just, that, that is really illuminating. And I think, um, uh, excuse me, I've just got a helicopter coming by. Hopefully they haven't come to pick me, JP Morgan come to pick me up out of my desk. But um, um I was going to ask you the other thing I was going to ask you. There's two things that that, that I'm probably going to ask you still, which is now November the 8th, uh, midterms. Um, Again, I'm this side of the pond. I I don't know. I mean, but do you think that if, if, for example, uh, the Democrats lose um, uh, control of the Congress, uh, is that going to change anything, any dynamics at all? 
Well, so right now, both polling and betting markets are suggesting uh, that 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 Republicans are going to be one or one or both uh, houses of Congress, and so we would enter a more split government. Um, in some ways, it's already been split. I mean, this, the Senate in particular uh, has has been, you know, especially the way the way that it works, where you know, when we have a filibuster, for example, uh, there's limitations on what you can get through anyway. So we've already had a somewhat split government. It's going to, I think, get more split going forward. Um, and so I I think a lot of people assume that that kind of locks in, you know, that that it means no new spending, um, and and I think that could be true, but it also means no new taxes probably, or very very challenging to raise taxes, right? So when you look at long term in the United States, we've got structural trillion dollar deficits um, as far as the eye can see, and then with the increased uh, interest rates uh, over time, as that as that you know some of that debt comes due and gets and gets uh, you know uh, reissued, uh, basically as that as that debt rolls over. Uh, it, it starts, you know, going up in terms of interest payments by the federal government, and that actually increases the deficit uh, even more. Uh, and so, as we kind of look out, and that assumes no recessions, right? That assumes no recession in 2023 or 2024, even though, for example, the yield curve is currently inverted. Um, you know, we, we have kind of a slowing, a decelerating economy. Uh, and so, even assuming no recession, um, you know, it is very, very large deficits, and that's generally this 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 type of more inflationary type of environment where you have a deficit that you can't fully control you can't really raise taxes uh politically you can't really cut some of these these programs that that you know are very politically uh popular it'd be very unpopular to cut them i, I think a lot of that kind of forward spending is already locked in uh and so i think that in some ways gridlock just just reinforces that further and and and, and finally the fed um powell the fed um tomorrow uh, FOMC tomorrow. Um, do you? Th- I mean, I guess we figure seventy-five basis points baked in. Do you think there's any kind of? I mean, there's been talk of a pivot of slowing down. What, what, what do you think? What's your your thoughts? You would. You're so well connected. I mean, you probably have got a, a good sense of of what they may be uh, forced or not forced to do. Well, so they were they were kind of hinting that they might start uh, initiating language about still hiking, but at a slower pace. Um, and I think that's, that's probably on the table. Now we did get a decent job report, um, a job opening report. And also we, you know, we, we've had some fed officials kind of walk back some of those dovish things and kind of reiterate a hawkish view. So maybe they, maybe they go another meeting before they introduce that type of language. I think there, there's, there's kind of a toss up there. Um, but I think that with rates where they are and kind of the state of the economy, I do think that we're probably getting to a period where they're going to you know that that the rate of change, the hawkishness and rate of change terms is probably peaking, uh, even though in absolute terms they're obviously not at the at the at the rate that they want to get to and that the market's pricing for. Uh, so I think that that's going to be something to keep an eye on, and I think you know a longer term dynamic is really just to focus on the energy market because, you know, the U.S. is is drawing down its its uh, strategic petroleum reserve. Um, I, I think you know somewhat past the midterms that's probably going to stop. Or you know they could keep pushing it further, but there's you know obviously there's only so only so far they can draw that down. At the same time, China is you know still under kind of these rolling lockdowns, which, which reduces flights, it reduces you know uh, just various types of of, of fuel use, um, and 
as Europe kind of continues to go through a natural gas shortage and, and you know, right now, for example, there's unseasonably warm weather. Uh, they got the storage tanks full, but over time, but there's also demand destruction a lot. Like as we talked about, a lot of plants are closed, right? So as, as you want to kind of move forward and reopen, there's still a lot of energy demand and there could be substitutions, right? So you can have more coal, you can have more uh, oil uh, usage, for example. Um, and, you know, I think that the, the market is, too kind of um, calm about what could happen with oil over, say, a five-year period, right? If you look at a lot of analyst expectations when they, you know, Wall Street analysts, when they look at, say, an oil company and they they kind of price out what's going to happen, they, they usually assume like 60 or $70 oil. Uh, they kind of assume that the, the spike's just going to go back down and we're going to kind of go to this like, you know, kind of low plateau. Obviously, different different shops have different price estimates. But for example, if you look at at Morningstar analysts, they're, they're using $60 uh, oil uh, for their long-term assumption. And that, that you know, I don't think that's a world we're going back to. I mean, you could you could maybe hit those types of numbers briefly if you have a sharp enough recession and, and, and period of demand destruction. But when you look at the supply side, um, I, I think that's still going to be a, an inflationary variable. Uh, you know, during, during COVID, there is a, a, a big shift in terms of, uh, you know, kind of overnight, people's demand shifted. And that put a lot of stress on certain aspects of the supply chain. And that's coming off, right? That extreme level of, of, of shift is, is kind of behind us. But I think that the, the second story here is the ongoing, uh, you know, energy markets. And and I, I think that essentially what happened with natural gas in Europe kind of happened with oil, um, over like a multi-year uh, period. And I think that that's a risk to be aware of. And that has all sorts of implications for, for bond pricing, that has implications for equities, that has implications for, um, you know, uh, you know, gold, for example. And I think that's something to watch. And I think that one of the catalysts uh, is that, you know, when the Strategic Petroleum Reserve stops going straight down, uh, you know, that's, that's supply coming out of the market that's going to stop coming out of the market. And I, I, today I heard trial, whether it was trial balloon or what, what but we saw, uh, we're talking about, the, um, the US was talking about energy caps on Russia. Is that feasible? Is that possible? Well, that's the, I mean, there's ways that they can try to cap it, but then the problem is, can they get it, right? So uh, kind of the history of price caps is that price caps lead to shortages, um, especially when you're trying to cap something outside of your jurisdiction. There's also been... You know, if you're an energy producer and, you know, you're kind of a scapegoat now for uh, various politicians that are dealing with inflation and they say, well, it's the, it's the energy company's fault, right? I mean, if you look at, at most, you know, long-term charts, energy companies have been terrible investments for like a 15-year period. Um, uh, you know, they've, they've generally not done very well. Uh, and so it's not like, the, you know, no, when they were not making money and they were going through bankruptcies, no politician wanted to, you know, save them. But now that they're actually having a profit, uh, there's suddenly like these, these, you know, people are floating windfall taxes. They're floating nationalization. Obviously, different jurisdictions are handling that differently. And if you're looking, if you're an oil company, you're looking at this this environment. You say, okay, well, you know, we don't know what oil pricing is going to look like over the next several years, and we also don't know what percentage of our profits we're even going to get to keep. I mean, essentially, we have all the downside. Um, if, if oil has a bearish scenario and we could have our upside capped in some way. Uh, and so that certainly is, uh, is not a 
attractive environment to put billions of dollars into long-term projects. I mean, you, you know, you can do short-term shale uh, type of work, uh, but if you're going to go offshore, you're going to do some sort of like large uh, investment project. It's not a very attractive environment for that to, to happen. And I think that that, you know, so many people look at the demand side of energy, and I think that supply side is going to continue to be pretty tight going forward. And, and you know, that's only one of the variables. There's also just it, it, it's it takes a long kind of investment cycle to bring more oil online. And I just think that, you know, we're, we're still like nowhere near kind of starting that in, in earnest. And the very last, I, I, you've been so generous with your time, the very, very, very last question. Silver, any thoughts on silver? Well, I mean, it's, you know, it, it's a more volatile metal than, than gold. Um, I, I think they generally, you know, more often than not, they go in the same general direction. Uh, and so if you were to have, you know, a bullish move in gold, I think that, that silver would, would, would likely follow and probably with greater amplitude. Um, I think you have to be more careful with position sizing when it comes to silver, um, you know, just because of the volatility. Uh, you know, it's also got that long-term usage in a variety of technologies. Um, and so it's that it's that hybrid metal between, you know, it's, it's got a monetary premium, but it's also, it's more used in industry. Um, and so I'm, you know, I'm constructive on, on gold, silver, and platinum, really. Uh, I, I think, you know, and, it, and same thing for copper, for example, when you look out long-term, I've been, I've been cautious about copper in this kind of, um, decelerating economic environment. But when I look out long-term, uh, I'm, I'm quite bullish on copper. So I think, I think that the kind of the broad commodity spectrum, uh, whether it's gold, silver, platinum, copper, oil, uh, on different time frames, uh, I think are all pretty attractive. I think this is, I think we're at the early innings of a of a commodity decade. That that'd be my base case. Now I, I you know, I continue to reassess that uh, as as new data comes in. Uh, but my kind of base case for a while, for a number of years now, and still going forward, is that I think this is like a, a broad, broadly constructive decade for commodities. That's fantastic, and that's a great place to end, Lynn. Thank you so so much for your time and and your um, thoughts today really sage information uh, people i honestly think that people will probably need to listen to this more than once so thank you so much for joining us and please i'd really love to have you back again uh, and we could maybe have a, a, a explore a little more about uh, perhaps as as you say things are about to roll out um and um you know your, your thoughts here we're watching all those things, the energy markets, bond markets, um, and uh, really would love to have you back at some point uh, when we've, um, you know, when we've sort of perhaps got through the, to the new year. Yeah, I appreciate you having me. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Andrew McGuire and Lynn Alden for another fascinating discussion. And remember, buy physical and make sure it's one-to-one -one and understand the difference between what Andy affectionately calls the casino paper and gold and silver markets and the actual physical gold and silver markets. They're not the same. Don't be fooled. And there you have it. That's all we have for you today on another episode of Live from the Vault. We're going to add some links down there if you want more information on Lynn and keep help spreading the word uh, about this channel by hitting that like Share this information, hit the subscribe button, and also click on the bell if you'd like to be notified as each episode goes live. And with that, we'll see you next time right here on Live from the Vault. See you then. <laughs>